New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disease in History. Larry, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you, Justine. It's really great to be here. It's great to have you. I know as a young hippie doctor... Uh, who traveled by bus from London overland through the Khyber Pass with some merry pranksters, we'll say. For sure they were. Yeah, uh, from the Hog Farm Commune. Uh, You ended up in the ashram of Neem Karoli Baba in the Himalayas. And it was there that you received a most unusual and preposterous life assignment and it was to be part of a team to eradicate smallpox in India, which was one of the last homes of this horrific disease. And I would love for you to share with us a little bit about the assignment itself. When your guru said, okay, you're going to work for WHO, World Health Organization, My wife and I, who have now been married 47 years. Congratulations. And uh, we were together as hippies, and they say hippie relationships don't last. There's proof to the contrary. Uh, We were living in this ashram, and Neem Karoli Baba, who we called Maharaji, after we had been there for a couple of years, and we had been studying with him and meditating and praying and trying to understand a lot of the Indian scriptures as well as the Western scriptures, a very quiet time. One day he called me and he had given me the name Dr. America. So he kind of bellowed out, Dr. America. And I came to see him and Gerritje came with me and he said, Dr. America, in a very conspiratorial voice, how much money do you have? (laughs) And he had never asked for anything and we'd never been able to give any money to the temple. How much money do you have? And I thought about it and I said, oh, $500. He said, Jute Bolo, you're lying. How much money do you have in America? (laughs) I'm thinking, well, I just paid off my debts from medical school, and I don't think I have, I think maybe $500 in America. And he looked at me, he started to laugh, and he said, $500 here, $500 there. You are no doctor. And I laughed because (laughs) that's what my mother said to me. (laughs) You're not making a lot of money, you're no doctor. But he had said this so far in Hindi and I spoke Hindi, you have only $500 here, $500 there, you're no doctor. You are no doctor. Then he started saying it in English. He wagged his finger, Dr. America, you are no doctor, you are no doctor, U-N-O doctor, United Nations Organization. Dr. America is going to become a United Nations doctor. You're going to go to villages and give vaccinations. Because this terrible disease, smallpox, is going to be pulled out by the roots, eradicated. This is God's gift to humanity. 
God is going to lessen the burden. You're supposed to go to WHO and go get your job. And I sat back on my heels, and I really didn't understand a thing he said. And he said, go now. I said, what now? Go. <laughs> you mean get up right so then. So we got up, and we, we took a, a taxi to the bus station, a, a bus to the train station, a train to Delhi, a rickshaw, and taxi to WHO, about 15, 16 hours. And I walked into WHO, just as he said to do. I followed exactly his instructions. I walked into the World Health Organization, and they kicked me out in about 30 seconds. I mean, <laughs> a- after all, I had a dress on. <laughs> I had a beard down to the and When you say a dress, this, you were dressed as Indians were dressed. I was wearing a kurta pajamas, but it looks a lot like a gown. And I walked in as what they saw was some Western hippie. And I gone was the native, Western, huh? <laughs> Gone native. When D.A. Henderson, who was the boss of the smallpox program, interviewed me. He said, nice kid, appears to have gone native. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went back to see to the ashram, another train and bus and rickshaw, and all the way back to the ashram. And I walked in, and, and Marge said, did you get your job? He said, go back. And over the next six months, I did that a dozen times, that same trip. And after a while, I kind of got smart about it, and I began to cut my beard a little bit, and I borrowed a, an ill-fitting Indian suit to wear, and I kept walking in, and um, nothing happened. And then one day, I thought, well, this is not going anywhere after six months, and I told Girija that um, I wanted to bring her mother to India. So we got her a plane ticket, and uh, she flew into India, and we took her to a, a very remote place in Rajasthan, to a place called Udaipur, kind of a old palace in the middle of the water. And as we were putting her into her room in this out-of-the-way place, I see another Westerner getting into her room. And it was Nicole Grasset, who was the head of the smallpox program. And I said, Nicole, it's me. The kid who's knocked on your door a dozen times. You know me. And she said, oh, what are you doing here? How weird to see you. But listen, I'm taking my first vacation day that I've had in 10 years. I'm not going to be social. Please forgive me. But how weird to see you. (laughs) And she went back and she said she had a dream about my guru (laughs) talking to her. And she called me up and she said, you know, I can't hire you. There's no job. You can't be a doctor here. You've got no training. You've got no experience. You're the youngest person that WHO's ever interviewed. But can you type? (laughs) And can you write and edit in English? Because I was thinking if I create a position low enough that the Indian government and WHO don't notice (laughs) and don't have to approve, I could hire you as a secretary would you be willing to do that? And I said without even thinking, sure. My guru said I was supposed to work for you. He didn't say how. So they created a job low enough, and I was hired as a secretary. I wouldn't even call it a secretary. I was hired to file things and uh, help her. She spoke French and help her um, translate into English. And I did that for about six months. And then uh, one of the Russian doctors a professor from Moscow who was supposed to lead a field program got sick and the program was just beginning. There hadn't been a smallpox program before. 
and they were desperate to find a replacement. And they were so desperate, they decided they'd give the kid a chance. And uh, I remember Bill Fagey, who became the head of CDC and the head of the Carter Center. He took me to a village in Merritt District and showed me my first case of smallpox. And I was totally unprepared for seeing how it's bad that disease is. It's a horrible, horrible disease. It's a horrible disease. You know, when you get it, you get it on your fingers and on your toes and on your face and all over your body, in your eyes. 10% of all the blindness in India was caused by smallpox. But what you don't know is you have those same lesions all inside of your body. It's the most painful imaginable death. And and you have said, and you have the statistics in the book, like in just one century, in the 20th century, 500 million people died of that virulent form of smallpox. Justin, Not- when you, you and I came from the Midwest and you from this other state called Alabama, <laughs> when we came here to San Francisco around the summer of love, in that year, three million people died of smallpox in the rest of the world. We didn't know anything. We had no idea. And so you actually joined the team, and people need to really pick up the book and really read just the blow by blow, one of the themes is that you have persisted, and you continue to persist. The first words in the book are a quote from the I Ching, perseverance furthers. So is that your advice for us at these times? Well, I think that's the tactic. Maybe that's not the strategy. The tactic is to never give up, never give in. We should never give up our values of civil liberties, and we should never give up our values of equality under the law. We should never give up our values that it is one nation with liberty and justice for all. We should never give up our our love for each other and our understanding that we're all in this together, no matter who the president is or what the government is. We fought against the war in Vietnam, against the war in Iraq for civil rights. We'll continue to fight. We should never give up. We should be persevering. But the strategy, I think, it changes from decade to decade, from movement to movement. We have to think long and hard how we're going to get through this and how we're going to continue to make the world a better place for all. And I would think that we don't do this in isolation. It's a community that we join with others, that we not just say, this is just my fight alone. Whatever it is, whatever we stand for that's right and good in the world. You know, to talk about the flip side of that, the the Southern Poverty Law Center has for 60 years been monitoring hate groups. And they published something on their website called a hate map. You know, and, and this hate map shows where all the hate groups are operating. And here are some white supremacist groups, and here are some groups that are against immigration, and here are some groups that are, you know, clearly racist in their ways. And these groups had separate causes, and they were siloed, and then along came the Internet. Along came the web. Along came social media. And they found themselves, and they said, my gosh, we may have different interests, but we're part of a movement. That's the same thing that happened to us in the 60s. You may have entered the movement because you were uh, a civil rights activist or against the war in Vietnam or for um, uh, economic equality. Or women's rights. Or women's rights or later gay rights or whatever your, your cause was. But you recognized in the eyes of 
each other, that we're all part of a movement, even though my reason for joining it may have been different than yours. We need to understand that there is another movement today. It is not one that we're part of. And we need to understand what are the legitimate grievances and the illegitimate ones. And we never look at somebody else who voted in a different way than we did and assume that they are the other. We don't know what their motivation was. You know, you just, you can't read somebody else's heart from the outside. The Buddhists say that you can't tell the difference between somebody who is fully realized and become equanimous and someone who just doesn't give a shit. You can't tell the difference. So we need to really have the right strategy to deal with these troubled times and then perseverance further. I, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. I lived in Michigan for a long time. Michigan is hollowed out by the loss of jobs. Same thing with Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the Rust Belt. There are people who are so desperate. We need to, to understand what those real grievances are and find ways to address them. Thank you. Thank you for that. So are you optimistic about the future? Well, I have to be optimistic. I saw the last case of killer smallpox only a year, year and a half after I had seen dozens of children in a railway station die of smallpox, bodies stacked like cords of wood. I, I've seen the worst disease in history and maybe the worst epidemic of it in modern times. And then it was gone. We eradicated it. And um, it's a miracle. I can't ever not be optimistic that having seen doctors from 170 countries, Russians and Americans, who at the time had 40,000 nuclear warheads pointed at each other, and still people from every religion, race, every language, country, came together and worked to eradicate this disease. I know we can come together and conquer anything we set our mind to and, and prove that love conquers hate. May it be so. Larry, I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today. Thank you, Justine. Thank you for having me. It's quite wonderful here at this cafe. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventures of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the worst disease in history. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, LarryBrilliant.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. 
please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.